our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, let's read verses 1 through 3. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you received, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandment we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word that you have given us to form the life that you have placed within us. To guide us, Lord, to instruct us that we might have the mind of Christ and live the life of Christ. Father, tonight, for the sake of your son, for the sake of your people, I pray that there would be food at your table, that your people would be helped, they would be strengthened. They would have greater understanding to the end, Lord, that they would walk in a manner that pleases you. Father, the flesh profits nothing. The mind and the strength of man are vain. Eloquence is, is stupid. Only you, Lord, can work in the heart of your people. Only You can speak to them the Word of life. I pray, Lord, that You would. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, the last sermon that we preached here was that sanctification is the will of God for the life of the believer. And that is true. Now, sanctification is not the totality of the will of God for a believer, but it is an extremely important aspect. Now, having said that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some very important truths that are related to sanctification. Extremely important truths. The first one that we're going to look at is this. It's the goal of sanctification. Why is sanctification so important? And what is the purpose of sanctification? Then we're going to look at the means. You know, a preacher can exhort you, he can instruct you, he can tell you, you must be sanctified, you must grow. But he must tell you how. Not according to something he's invented, but according to the Scriptures. Now, the goal of sanctification, what is that? That we live in a manner that is pleasing to God. That is the reason for everything that we pass through, that in the end we might be pleasing to God. And I want to say this, something very important, very foundational whenever we talk about our life in Christ. God has one claim upon all men, but He has two claims upon you as a believer. Get this wire here, it's kind of... There we go. He has two claims upon you as a believer. One, He created you. Now, I want you to think about something. The things that you make, you're very zealous about those things. They belong to you. 
He made you, so He has a claim upon you. But now an even greater claim, He redeemed you. Not with the blood of goats or lambs. Not with all the riches of heaven. But He redeemed you with the blood of His dear Son. So He has a great claim upon you. And that claim should direct your entire life. Now, it's not without purpose that the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, begins with a declaration of this very thing. I am the Lord your God who did what? Who redeemed you from where? From Egypt. From what? A house of slavery. And then he goes on to give the commandments. Do you see that? He draws his claim in on them. I'm God, which means I'm creator. But also, I redeemed you from Egypt. So now, therefore, walk this way. Now, it's even more so with you. He, he made you. But He didn't just redeem you from Egypt. And not just with a Passover lamb. He redeemed you with the blood of His Son. And that is a great claim upon you. It's a claim, though, that um, it's not a drudgery. It's a claim we boast in. That He made us. And we now belong to Him. And the desire of our heart should be to walk with Him. To please Him. Now, the means of sanctification. We're going to look at instruction. We're going to look at encouragement. And we're going to look at exhortation. And all these things, all these three things, do not come from the mind of man. It is not your opinion or even your life experience that people need to hear about, nor mine. But it is instruction, exhortation, and encouragement from the Word of God. Now, I want us to do a quick overview of what we studied last week with regard to sanctification. In verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, sanctification comes from the Greek word agiasmos. And it can, it can refer to consecration or it can refer to holiness. And the whole idea is that it's a process whereby you and I become holy in our real practical life as He is holy. Or another way of saying it, that in our experience on this earth, our walk, we become more and more like Christ. And you should know, you should believe that since you've been made a new creature and since the Spirit of God indwells the people of God, that this is a real possibility. No, I'm not speaking about sinless perfection, but becoming more and more like Christ is a real possibility. All the moping and all the false humility does not make up for what we should be doing, which is striving to be more holy. Now, I want to say a few statements that are very important to put sanctification in context. First of all, the moment we believed, we were declared legally right before God. Not by virtue of our own works, but by virtue of what? By virtue of the person and works of Jesus Christ. So that's a settled matter. We are right with God. We are reconciled. It is a thing that we can speak about in perfect tense. It's something that's already been done and the virtue of it continues on up to the present and forever. We're reconciled with God through faith and that ought to give us a great deal of encouragement. At the same time, the moment we believe, 
we were separated by God. Called, so as to say. Not called away from Him, but called away from the world and brought to Him for what? For His purposes and for His glory. Now, what is His purpose? Why did He call you out? Why did He draw you to Himself? Well, I think Paul explains it best in Romans 8.29. I'm just going to read the text to you. Probably most of you are familiar with it. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. That is the purpose of God for you. And it wasn't a purpose that started at your conversion. It wasn't a purpose that even started at the creation of the universe. It was a purpose in the mind of God throughout all eternity. Now that is a comforting and encouraging thought. This is not something He just threw together all makeshift-like. This has been planned out in the mind of God throughout all of eternity, and with your name, with your name stamped on it. Now, the moment we believed, we were set apart by God. But also we can say this, the moment we believed, a divine work was begun in us. A divine work that will continue on until our final glorification in the presence of Christ. And this divine work is what is often referred to as progressive sanctification. Progressing. Now that progression isn't, for example, when you go from here to Floyd, you don't go up this way. How do you go up? You go up this way. So our sanctification, the life of a true believer, you may look at a true believer and see that he almost seems to be going backwards, but it'll only be for a period of time. Over the full course of his life, what is happening? He's not going backwards. He's going forward. He's going up. He's being changed. Now, I want to say two things about this. First of all, that sanctification is primarily or chiefly a divine work. It is a work of God. It depends upon God. And again, isn't that an encouraging thought? Because it gives us confidence that the work that was begun, even though we don't seem like we've made that much progress, the work that was begun will be completed. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say to the church in Philippi that he was confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus relentlessly working in your life when you can see it and when you can't see it. Working in your life to conform you to the image of Christ. But here's something else I want you to see. That although it is a divine work, there is also requirements and demands placed upon us that we would respond appropriately. Theology gets really, really bad whenever one of these things is emphasized to the denial of the other. Is God working in your life? And because of that, can you have confidence? Absolutely. But does that sovereignty of God make you passive? If it does, you're either not converted or you don't understand the sovereignty of God. It doesn't make us passive. What does it do? It gives us hope to join in that work. 
to actually do the things He tells us to do that He tells us will make us holy because we know He's working. All we need to do is, is, is respond. And that's why Paul, who said what I just said to the church in Philippi, also said that since God is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure, since He's doing that, then how should you respond? By working out your salvation in fear and trembling. And what does that mean? Take very seriously God's purpose in your life. Take very seriously this purpose of sanctification. And if you're doing anything, do this. Respond to this. Because as you know, if you've studied anything of church history, a person who is holy, a person growing in sanctification, God can use greatly regardless of their limitations. And before God, they are His delight. Now, I want us to look now at the goal of sanctification. What is that? It's to live in a manner pleasing to God. Now, isn't the Christian life, haven't we just made it simple? What's it all about? Pleasing God. Pleasing God. Now, it says in 4.1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that, you, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. Now, we're going to look at two things. Two things. What we're supposed to do. Alright? This is no let go and let God. This is no, I'm going to be passive because He's sovereign. No. We're going to look at what we are supposed to do. And then we're going to look at the sphere in which we're supposed to do this. First of all, what are we supposed to do? Well, we've already stated it, haven't we? Please God. Now, let me say this. You know that Western evangelicalism has become very self-centered, very inward-looking. In a sense, it's all about me generation. But here's what you need to see. The purpose of your life is not that you obtain some great personal, temporal satisfaction out of life. That is not your purpose. Nor is it your purpose to fulfill some vision or personal purpose that you have defined for your life or you think that God has conferred upon you. That you're going to find some satisfaction by fulfilling something, some deed, some activity, some calling. No! What is the purpose of your life? The purpose of your life is to discover everything in the Scriptures that please God. And then set yourself to doing it. Find out what the will of your Master truly is. Then just do the will of your Master. Whenever we think about the providence of God, most of us are thinking about what? You know, this mysterious thing that has not been told us that's in the future and we're so preoccupied with it. When what we should be doing 
is just looking at the will of God that is revealed to us in the Scriptures, how He tells us that we please Him and do it. And then I can assure you, He will take care of you. He will take care of you. Now, two truths that I want us to consider about this first truth. First, pleasing God is to be our great goal. Now, this is so reflected in the life of the Apostle Paul that I want us to turn to a very important passage right now in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Look what he says. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Now think about this. You know all about ambitious men. The world today applaud ambitious men. And in itself, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious. Paul was ambitious. In a sense, Christ was ambitious. The problem is, what is the object of your ambition? Now, we could sit here all night and I could talk about greedy, ambitious men and get all sorts of amens. But that's not what I want. I'm talking to you. And we as Christians have another problem. We're so passive. We have no ambition. We're kind of like stimuli response plant that just kind of waves there at the bottom of the ocean until something touches it and then it responds. That's not the Christian life. You and I are supposed to be ambitious. All over the teachings of Christ. The pearl of great price. Seek ye first the kingdom. We're to be ambitious. For what? For pleasing God. In some of the resolutions of, of Jonathan Edwards, there's ambition all over those resolutions. We've got this false idea that passivity is holiness. And we seem, especially as men, so weak instead of vibrant and looking to be more than what we are and believing that we can be. A strong faith that takes hold of the promises says, I'm not going to wait around. I'm ambitious. I want to be like Him. You see that? It's very important. So many people who talk about sovereignty today don't understand sovereignty. And I can give you one test to determine whether or not you understand sovereignty. If the sovereignty of God causes you to be more passive, you do not understand sovereignty. But if it gives you the greatest impetus and strength and motivation to strive, then you understand. You understand. Now, also I want you to look. He says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether home or absent. Now, you listen to me, believer. Listen to these words. Home or absent. What's Paul saying? Paul was seeking to be just as pleasing on the earth to God as he would one day be in heaven. Is that your goal? You know, for most Christians, it's not. Because they just go, well, you know. We're always going to be this. We're always going to be sinners. We're never going to be perfect until Christ comes back. And that is true theology. But you've warped it. You've let it be an excuse. You haven't tempered it with all the other passages that tell us 
that we can prosper in the things of God. I'm not talking about this silly idea of sinless perfection, but I am talking about growing to a maturity. We can grow to a maturity. We ought to be ambitious and we ought to have as our goal. I want to be as pleasing to you here on earth as I will be in heaven so that on that day, when I cross over, there won't be that big of a change. Do you see that? Now, a second point that I want to make. Pleasing God is our great duty. If you will notice that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he said, you received instructions from me before. About what? About how you ought to walk and please the Lord. Ought. Little three-letter word in Greek. Dig. Now, it carries with it the idea of obligation and duty. And what we need to realize here is this thing of pleasing the Lord is not just being thrown out to you as an option to check off in your Christian life as you choose to do so. It's not a suggestion saying if you want your best life now, you ought to do this. None of that kind of language is in the text. What's in the text is you ought to. You ought to. It is an authoritative command. Do you see that? It's something we ought to do. We ought to please God. Now, I want to talk about the motivation for doing that. We're also going to draw that from 2 Corinthians 5. What's the motivation for living a life that's pleasing to God? Well, first of all, look in verse 10 of chapter 5. The reality of Christ's judgment. Now, look at that. Now, look. Here. I would hope that you're a little afraid. I would hope that there's a bit of trembling in your heart. Well, you think this judgment day for the Christian is just going to be a cakewalk? Say, Brother Paul, we're justified. Yes, we're justified in Christ by the virtue of Christ. We add nothing to it. Nothing will ever change God's disposition toward us. Our status, our position is sealed. We are saved by grace. Amen. But Paul spoke about the judgment of believers. And he said, knowing the fear of the Lord. He associated the fear of the Lord with that judgment. What I want you to see here is that. Well, listen to what he says in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, we need to avoid a materialistic interpretation of this, like we're all a bunch of competitors and we're all greedily trying to get more reward than the other. We need to throw that out. That's not Christian. At the same time, don't discount what he's saying. You're going to make choices on this earth that's going to affect eternity. I cannot explain it. I cannot give you every detail. The Scriptures do not reveal it to us. Salvation is by grace alone. You will be in heaven, but there is a sense of being recompensed for what you do here. And to deny that is to tear a page out of the Bible. 
You need to take this seriously. So do I. Now, another thing that we have here is in verse 14, another motivation. The reality of Christ's love. Listen to what he says. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So what's the other motivation? One of them is you're going to stand before God. You're going to be judged. You are. Know that. Now, when you look up in that judge's face, you're going to see a father and a brother. Not a judge who's going to condemn, but one who is going to judge as a father, as a brother. And it is a serious thing. It was a motivation in the life of the great Apostle Paul. But also, the love of Christ. Now, we have to understand the genitive here. This is not Paul's love for Christ that motivated him. And that's a good thing. Because if I thought that my love for Jesus was a foundational motivation, I would be very afraid. When I look at my love, I don't see anything constant. I don't see anything strong. I don't see anything permanent. I see something weak, often fainting and fickle. So if my love for Christ is my motivation, I'm going to have some great problems. But if we turn this around and we understand it, that it is Christ's love for Paul and Christ's love for us, Christ's love for you, that changes everything, doesn't it? Because His love does not wane. It does not change. It does not fade. It does not get weak. It is not mutable so that it's moving all over the place all the time. It's strong. It's constant. It's permanent. It's forever. And a love like that, what should it do to us? It should say, I want to please Him just as much here as I will do there. I want to please Him. Now, he says the love of Christ constrains or controls us. I want to give you, I've taken and made several statements that I'm going to read to kind of give you an idea. What does he mean that, the, that Christ's love for His people controls us or constrains us? What does it mean? The word is suneko. And it can mean many things like hold fast, seize. So here are some of the phrases. The love of Christ seizes us and takes custody of us. I like that. Takes custody of us. Seizes us. You say, well, it doesn't seize me. Brother Paul, I'm a believer, but I can't say it always seizes me. Well, what should you do then? Try to go deeper into the love of Christ. Not try to force yourself into some emotional state in which you think you love Christ more. But no, go into the Scriptures and see more of Christ's love for you. See more of it and cry out to God that He will reveal it to you. That it will seize you and will control you. Also, holds us fast and lashes us down to Christ. You know, the moment I said yes to my dear wife in our marriage vows, what else did I say? I said no to every other woman on the planet. They weren't disappointed about it, I can assure you. But I said no. 
in one sense, when I said yes, I lashed myself down to one woman. Do you see that? And the love of Christ, it lashes us down to Him and it holds us fast. Why can't you deny Him? Why can't you walk away? What did Polycarp say all these years? All these years? And he has not failed me once. He has not denied me once, my Master. Shall I deny Him now? They beat Him up. They burned Him at the stake. What lashed Him to the stake? The love of Christ. Not Polycarp's love for Christ, but Christ's love for Polycarp. Now, it says it also confines us or shuts us up to pure devotion to Him. Again, a declaration of love for one confines you to that one. Shuts you up to that one. The more you see the love of Christ, the more shut up to Christ you're going to be. Other loves are going to fade away. You see, again, it's not because you've twisted up some emotion in your life and you're running on those kind of silly fumes. But you're looking at Jesus. You're looking at Jesus. You're growing in your understanding of His love for you. And that changes you. Also exercises a constraining influence upon everything we are and everything we do. Now, constraining doesn't mean just limiting, although it does mean that, but it can also mean pushing. It limits us from what? That which does not please God. And it propels us to what? That which does please God. God. And then this last statement, it compresses our opinions. It narrows our choices. It focuses us upon what pleases Him. And that's the same in our own personal relationships, isn't it? When a spouse demonstrates an unusual quality and quantity of love, how it has a way of apprehending the other, and causing them to want to be more pleasing. You see that? Alright, let's go on. Now, what are we to do? We're to please Him. In what sphere are we to do this? Look at 4.1 again. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that, you receive, that as you receive from us instructions as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. Now, how or in what sphere are we to please God? In what realm? Well, he uses the word in our walk. And as I've said it so many times, this comes from the Greek word peripateo. Pateo means to walk. Peri has the idea of circumference, of around. And it's in our walking around. And what does that refer to? Our entire life. Our lifestyle. In everything that we are and that we do. There is no segregation in our life. No Separate category where Christ should not be considered and pleased. Do you see that? Now, I want to point out just this idea that in the Christian life, there is no sacred and secular. There's not. There is no secular and sacred in the realm of the Christian life. Everything that we do is sacred. And everything should be done for Christ. Now, this agrees with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, in the most menial task of eating and drinking, so if in that 
than not in everything? Absolutely in everything. Now, I want to talk for just a moment about the laborer, the carpenter, the mechanic, the electrician, the policeman, the homemaker. What are we to think? That, that men and women that have these vocations are confined to spend literally almost their entire day laboring for something that has no value before God? That is outside of the realm of pleasing God? That's the way some people look at it. That is a very, very, very unbiblical view. And praise God for the Protestant Reformation. Because in that, there was a turn back to the biblical doctrine of labor and work. That everything we do, we do unto the glory of God. That we do it for Him. That He is the God of the mechanic. He is the God of the engineer. He is the God of the mathematician. He is the God of the policeman. He's the God of everything. And that everything that we do is holy unto the Lord if we do it for His glory. You work for an employer. You seek to do what is right. You bring glory to God. And on that final day, you will be rewarded in the vocation that was given to you. The turning of a nut on a bolt to the glory of God is equal to a missionary preparing a message. Do you see that? That we do it all unto His glory. So what happens? The lid of the grave of our life is torn off. And the whole entire hole is filled with light. Everything has meaning. Every dish washed. Every diaper changed. Now if it's done with grumbling, if it's done with dissatisfaction over the providence of God, you bring Him no glory. But if you read the Scriptures correctly, then you find that going to school and studying mechanical engineering if you are doing that within the will of God, that you're pleasing to Him. That makes life better, don't you think? Now, this is not rhetoric. I'm not trying to make you feel good. This is truth. This is what the Bible teaches. And you need to grab a hold of it because it can really change a lot in the way you think and you work. Now, the means of sanctification. Instruction, encouragement, and exhortation. This is where we'll end. I'm going to read verse 1 again. Finally then, brethren, and verse 2, we request and exhort you in the Lord that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of of the Lord Jesus. Now, here's some important things I want you to think about when you look at this text. First of all, in verse 1, Paul makes reference to instructions that he gave to those in Thessalonica as to with, or with regard to how they ought to walk and please the Lord. Instructions. But in verse 2, he refers to these instructions as what? Commands. Now, the word Command, and not just commands, commands given by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, the word command, parangalia, it is a term that can also, well, it denotes, um, well, we could translate it this way a charge or an order. 
And uh, the Greek scholar Hebert, he, he says that it was actually used in Paul's time as a semi-military term that referred to a word of command handed down from a superior officer to another in order to hand it down to all. So, we're looking here at a military command. We're looking at a directive. We're looking at authority. Now look at who is the superior officer. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's He handed this command down to? The Apostle. And the Apostle, to whom has He handed it down? Not just to the church in Thessalonica. To you. To you. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means this. First of all, that Paul's instruction, like the rest of the Scriptures, it's an authoritative directive. That Paul's instructions, as well as all the instructions in the Scriptures, are commands by which you will one day be judged. And therefore, we should take them to heart with a great deal of seriousness. Now, something else we see here that's very important, and, and I think this is so important, especially in light of some things that are happening in the theological world at the present. That, isn't it amazing? Paul didn't spend much time with the church in Thessalonica. But we see that from the very beginning of their conversion and their discipleship, he was giving them instructions with regard to how they should walk and please the Lord. Paul didn't just preach the Gospel to them and then tell them to spend the rest of their life gazing at the Gospel. Now, you know what I feel about the Gospel. Do you know that there is truth in the element that we should, in, there is truth in the fact that we should constantly be looking at Christ and what He's done for us in the Gospel? You know that the Gospel is the greatest revelation of God. All that is true. And we should be constantly gazing, but not to the neglect of the other things of Scripture. You see, Paul didn't just preach the Gospel to them and say, gaze at the Gospel. He preached the Gospel to them and then he instructed them so that they could know how to live in light of the Gospel. You see, when someone gets saved, their natural or spiritual or supernatural response as a new creature ought to be this. How then shall I live with this new life that's been given to me? How then shall I live? And the answer of the godly minister will be opening up the Bible and turning to the instructions, the wisdom, the precepts, the commands, the exhortations of the full counsel of God. This is how you live in a manner pleasing to God. Now, Hebert says this, the message of the Gospel preached to them had brought them new life in Jesus Christ. Hopefully that's happened to you. Don't sit here in this church and think that because you conform to certain activities, you've come to know Christ. Ask yourself, is there new life? New life with new accompanying desires. He says, the message of the Gospel preached to them had brought them new life in Jesus Christ as their liberator from sin and death. 
And this new life had a positive ethical content. He's given you new life. But with that new life comes a whole entire different way of living. Radically different. These instructions were the guidelines for the effective development of the new life imparted to them in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again. Now listen very carefully. The instructions that Paul gave, as well as the rest of the full counsel of God in the Scriptures, the instructions were the guidelines for the effective development of the new life imparted to them in Christ Jesus. Yes, you have this new life, but you must be instructed. Now, a child is born into this world with new life. Are you content to leave the child with that? Now, the analogy breaks down because the child who's born into this world happens to be radically depraved. But still, the idea is there. Is it enough that they just have new life? Or with that new life, should there not also be new instructions with regard to how to live that new life? Now, if the new, if the new instructions are given more uh, preeminence and greater priority than the life, there is problem. But if we all talk about life all day long and there's no instruction, that's not biblical either. Now, also it's important to note here that in this interchange, He gave them instructions, they were commands, He did this beforehand. It's also important to notice that Paul is not really giving them anything new. But what he's doing is he's calling them to remember and to do the instructions they had already received. We live in a day and age when everybody, it seems, is just looking for a key. I'm talking about within Christianity. They're looking for a key. They're looking for a teaching that will automatically catapult them to some level of spirituality. Well, people have been looking for that key for about 2,000 years. But let me suggest, instead of you going on a snipe hunt, why don't you just remember and return to the fundamentals of the faith? Renewing your mind in the Word of God. Communion with God in prayer. Fellowship. Real fellowship with godly believers. So on so forth. Now, so He gave them instruction, but He also gave them encouragement. Let's read 4.1 again. You're going to memorize this text before we're finished. Brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. First of all, by referring to them as brethren, Paul reminds them that the exhortation, the commands were all, well, they all came forth from genuinely brotherly, genuine brotherly concern. Paul was not trying to gain some advantage on this people. Paul was not teaching them, instructing them, exhorting them, encouraging them, rebuking them. He wasn't doing it to gain something from them. He was doing it for the glory of Christ and he was doing it for their benefit. And benefit is the word that I want to grab a hold on at this moment. We do well to always remember 
that everything written in the Scriptures is for our benefit. The wisdom, the instruction, the precepts, the commands, the exhortations, and even the very, very hard rebukes, even the painful words, they are all there for our benefit, for our good. We need them all. We need them all. Now, also, he says also in this verse, he says, just as you actually do walk. Do you see what's going on here? This is so good. We see something very common here in the life and ministry of Paul. And what is it? That before he commands them or exhorts them to excel, he calls them to remember what's already been accomplished in them and through them. He talks about what they've done, what they've achieved, and he does this in order to then encourage them to go still further. This is Paul's practice. I mean, when you read the first letter to the church in Corinth, you're going to see that that church was really messed up. Had some serious ethical problems, serious doctrinal issues. But Paul begins that letter by saying all the good that he saw in the Corinthians. All the good. All the wonderful things that God had done. Now, this is something that I think, it's not psychology, it's not just some inference, it's all over Paul's letters. We even see it in the letters, well, the words of Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Pointing out good. Now, I'm not talking about flattery. But what I am saying is this is something that maybe we all ought to pick up on. That one of the best ways to help our brothers and exhort them is to encourage them first. Do you see that? That we would actually survey their lives, not with some critical, log-in-your-eye mentality, pharisaical, nitpicky, or our own inferences because of our own immaturity. No. We should try to discover the good that God has done in a person. And we should bring that to their mind and encourage them with what we have seen that is good. Not only in them, not only what God has done in them, but, but also how they've responded. Encourage them. And then tell them to abound. To go on still more. Encourage them to excel. Let me give you another example from Paul in Romans 15, 14 and 15. Listen to what he says. Now listen carefully. This would literally... If I were to go into some Christian settings and read this text without telling anyone it was in the Bible, they would get mad at me. But listen to what it says. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am... And I want you before I read this... I want to ask you, if someone walked up to you and said this, how would you respond? Would you go, hey, hey, no, 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 hey, no. Say that about me. But look what he says. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. Does that make you uncomfortable? Then maybe you need to tweak your theology just a little bit. He says, I, oh, yeah, but the goodness is just Christ. Yes, we all know that. Settle down. Just listen to the text. 
I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. What are you, some of you going to get together and rebuke Paul now? I think this is wonderful. And notice that he goes ahead and says it and then doesn't write in parentheses. Now you know I'm just talking about what Jesus did in you. He just says it. I meet believers, old and young. I'm not kidding. And I mean, I'm astounded at what I see in many of them. It's just so good. So much that's good that Jesus did. Also with your children. Yes, teach them the catechism. Teach them about radical depravity and all these other things. But also teach them about the goodness of Christ and the changes that He can make in the human heart and what He can create. And then look at your brothers and sisters and rejoice in what God has done in them. And look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. And rejoice at what God has done in you. I mean, so many people, I think, commit a great sin against God and that they don't acknowledge the good that God has done in them. Don't you realize every one of you in this room would be a lying, stinking thief. An adulterer. A blasphemer. But here Paul is able to say there's good. God has done a mighty work. We ought to rejoice in that. We ought to be encouraging to one another. Now, Exhortation, verse 4-1 again. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you excel still more. Now, Paul uses two verbs here, request and exhort. And what he's basically doing is he's heaping one term upon another. Now, what's his intention? He is not passive. That's his intention. He's not just throwing out something and saying, okay, you know, you want to click the box and you want to go along with this, that's okay. If not, I'm fine with that too. No, he's not. He loves these people. He desires their sanctification. He wants them to please God for the glory of God and for the benefit of them. He loves them. And so he's passionate and pastoral. And he's saying, please, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, it can be translated, I'm beseeching you, excel still more. Let's go further. Now, what can we learn from this? First of all, you and I must take joy and offer thanksgiving to God for what He has done in our lives, for the spiritual attainment that is there. We ought to thank Him for it. We ought to rejoice in it. We ought to delight in the work that God has done in us. But we should never rest at a certain level or be satisfied with a certain attainment of sanctification or Christ-likeness. We should still always wanting to be going further and further and further. Now, Paul is just asking us what he did on a daily basis. Let me read. 
Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Some of you ought to do that. Forgetting what lies behind. Some of you ought to do that for yourselves and you ought to do that for others. Forget about their past. Quit dwelling on it. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That should be you. That should be me. Why? Well, because it's something that can happen. Progress is promised. He who began a good work in us will finish it. Now, some would say that to constantly be exhorting people to excel still more, that that will, that will cripple them psychologically. That they will um, come to the point where they feel like they just don't measure up. I don't know where we get this stuff. I really don't understand the the Western psyche, how weak and feeble that we have become. It's unbelievable. No, if you tell me to excel still more, it means I'm not measuring up now and I'll feel bad about my Christian life. Well, I suppose that's true. If your standing status and position before God is based on your performance, then I suppose that's true. But if your status, your standing, your position, your acceptance is in the fixed work of the perfect Christ, then you're free to excel and you're free even from, fa- from the fear of failure in excelling because His love does not change. You are now fear, you are now free to strive because you're not. Now listen, you don't get anything else in this sermon. Get this. You are not striving to enter into his love. You are striving in the sphere of it. You're striving in the context of it. You have it. Let me give you the story of two wives. We see two wives that are totally just given themselves over totally to seeking to please their husbands. But one of them is confident and joyful and the other one is nervous and miserable. So, what made the difference? Well, the one that is nervous and miserable, she is striving to please her husband so that he will love her. And the other one, the confident one, She is striving to please her husband because he does love her. It's fixed. It's immutable. And that's the way it should be with us. Now, just talk about exhortation here for a second. And some preachers, they they don't see the need for exhortation. Especially some guys within the Reformed camp. They kind of say this, I just put the truth out there before the people. And if God doesn't change them with the truth I've taught them, then I'm not going to make any emotional appeals trying to manipulate anybody. Well, we should never try to manipulate anyone. But to say you're not going to make emotional appeals is to deny everything we see in the Scriptures. Look at the prophets. Did they not cry out for the people to listen? 
Look at Paul. How many times did he appeal, beseech, beg? Look at Christ. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, we should exhort in our preaching and we should exhort even in our personal conversations because we care and because God oftentimes carries out His sovereign decrees with very practical means. Now, but in our exhortation, here's what I want you to see, is that we have instruction, we have encouragement, and we have exhortation. And we should have everything in balance. If we're just instructing people, that's it? No. It's not going to work that way. But if we are just exhorting people and telling them to do this and that, but not instructing them on how to do it, it's going to have a negative effect. Or if we're always exhorting and instructing, but we're not encouraging, pretty soon the people are going to become exasperated. Or if all we do is encourage, which is basically what we see in much of evangelicalism today, just encouragement, then we turn everyone into a moper. The fact of the matter is we need all three things. They're all three in the Scriptures and they're all three a part of the ministry. Now lastly, he says that their instruction and everything else came in the Lord Jesus. And what does that mean? It is the sphere in which Paul exhorted, instructed, and encouraged. Paul was not moving in his own authority. Paul was doing this in the authority of Christ. Now what does that mean for us? This is what it means. A preacher has no authority over you. You don't have to listen to any exhortation or instruction, anything he has to say, unless what he says is conformed not to some inference in the Bible that he's pulled out, but conforms to the Word of God itself. And then if it does, you need to listen. Preaching, my dear friend, is a very dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to do. If I preach heresy, teachers will undergo a greater condemnation. You know that, don't you? So it's dangerous for me to preach. It's dangerous for you to listen to me preach. Now, if what I say does not conform to Scripture, you're not bound by it. You'll never hear it again, especially from the Lord Jesus Christ on the Day of Judgment. But if what I say or whoever stands in this pulpit says, and it is according to the Word of God, know this, you'll be held accountable for it. You'll be held accountable for it. So preaching is dangerous. Why do you go to that church? Oh, I just love the preaching. Why do you go to that church? Man, that preaching is dangerous. Dangerous. You see? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Please, Lord, work in the life of Your people. Feed them. Give them life. Strengthen them, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.